Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us this morning, whether you're here at Ajax or in Bowmanville or Port Perry. We're so glad that you've decided to be with us this morning. There's one thing in our culture that causes us anger and anxiety. It is technology. The thing that was supposed to help us causes us so much grief, especially when it comes to having people respond to us when we're trying to connect to them. You say something like this to a friend or a spouse, well, I called you and I left a message and then a second message. And some people say, what's a message? And then you're like, well, I was so desperate that I went on FaceTime and it was unavailable. And so then I direct message you on Facebook and you didn't get back to me. And so I texted you not once, not twice, but three times looking for the little dots to tell me I'm still loved and they weren't there. And, and so I got so desperate, I went on Instagram and tried direct messaging you there. And the person says back to you, well, how long you've been trying to get a hold of me? Well, 25 minutes, 25 minutes. Do you, do you love me? Uh, do you, are you disrespecting me? Have I offended you? Are you still my friend? Are we still married? I'm not sure what's going on anymore. We live in a culture where we believe then we instantly ask for something, we instantly must get it back and it causes anger and frustration. Well, in the story of Daniel, there is a moment where something is communicated of profundity and yet there is no answer back and it does not lead just to frustration or anger, it can lead to murder. Daniel and his friends are now settling in exile, settling in their new jobs, in their new careers. They're working in what we would call the Babylonian civil service. Finally, some stability. Finally, some sanity. Some, finally, some normality. And then something unexpected takes place. It's something epic and dramatic, something trauma-inducing. Never forget these young men's stories after being exiled, seeing family and friends killed off and starved, indoctrinated not for one but three years, changing their names, trying to make them worship idols and demons. They finally are starting to have stability and then they find out they might be randomly killed off for doing something they did not do. It reads like this in Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled. He could not sleep agitated, awake. No matter what he did, he could not sleep. Now, we're not sure what was happening. Could he not remember the dream, but at his core of his being, he knew something traumatic was taking place? Could he remember the dreams and they were so shocking and scary and overwhelming, he is struck with terror? Or is it a reoccurring dream that haunts him night after night? Well, no matter what we hear and see already is something so very important. Humans are humans, no matter their title or status. Oh yes, Nebuchadnezzar had all the power in the world. Oh yes, Nebuchadnezzar had the nuclear codes of his age, the biggest military, money beyond measure, power, absolute control, art, sex at command, religious access, yes. And yet, one little dream reminds him that he is just dust animated. One little dream reminds him that he might control the earth, but he does not control the heavens. He is the greatest person on earth in that moment, and yet, just like the rest of us, he is fearful and not in control. Well, the king summons the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed, and when they came, they stood before the king. Now, as modern hearers of this, we miss the nuance. The four categories mentioned above, these leaders are different groups of experts. They were the academics of the day and the religious priests of the day. 
Now you've heard of these men before if you've grown up in church. We celebrated every single Christmas when Jesus was around two years old. Magi, wise men from the east, came. And they came and visited Jesus. In Jesus' time and in this time, they were known as the occultists and also the scientists of the time. So the king calls the best and the brightest of science, of spiritual connection together, and they gather to speak to the king. Now, by the way, this was not unusual. This was normal. This was their role in the government, to give advice to the king on natural and supernatural issues. This is another day at work, another day at the office, or they thought it was. It says that Nebuchadnezzar said to them, I have had a dream, and it troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Yes, great king, we've been here so many times before. The gods speak to you and us through dreams and stars and visions. So tell us the dream and we will interpret it. Now, what we don't know as modernists is this. This was the agreed upon rules of the day. We know this because of a man named Barassus, who in the third century BC, who was a Babylonian priest, wrote a book called The History of Babylon. And in this book, he describes this occurrence. He said that there was a demigod called Onesus, a merman who came to the shores of Babylon. He and seven others had been created by the god Ea, the god of intelligence. And one historian helps us understand all this. Ea created that God and the other ones, and they came and taught human beings, according to Babylonian mythology, how to become civilized. They gave mere mortals the gift of writing, science, architecture, law, math, and agriculture, knowledge that had been the sole prerogative of the gods up to that point, but now was given to humans. But Ea, that other God, did not share all knowledge with humanity. Knowledge of the future or revelation or secrets actually remain with the gods and would only be accessible to humans through divination, including reading animal entrails, using the stars and astrology and astronomy, and interpreting dreams. So the rules that are being followed in Nebuchadnezzar's court are actually given by the gods. And so when the gods speak in weird or strange ways, the priests who had the occultic right to interpret show up. So the king says to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will cut you into pieces. Your houses will be turned into piles of rubble. But if you do tell me my dream and interpret it, you will receive gifts from me and rewards and great honor. So tell me what my dream is and interpret it for me. Well, that moment, shock would have broken it across the room. Never, never, never had a king or any person demanded such a thing in known history. To know the dream and interpret what it means? No, no, see, this is not how the universe works. This is not the way the gods had set out the work. And so the king is sitting on his throne with full authority and full power, and they have no time to debate or talk through why he's changed the rules. The king seems to be going crazy, and this has turned into an all-or-nothing deal. One scholar said this is like walking into Vegas not knowing that you're going to do a card game and it's a high stakes poker game and if you win you get everything you've ever desired but if you lose you die so the king looks at these academics and priests of the day and says if you tell me this I'll bless you in profound abundance but if you do not I will kill you I will kill your family I will literally turn your house into rubble and even all your slaves that work for you will also be murdered well at this moment they try again negotiating with the king 
based on the agreed upon rules that they had all been working on. Once more, they said, verse seven, tell, let the king tell the servants the dream. We will interpret it. The king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping this situation will change. So then you tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. In other words, this is what he says to his closest advisors. You are liars, you are corrupt, and you are wicked. Now, this has been terribly preached in many churches. Many pastors say, see, all the people around Nebuchadnezzar were charlatans. They were like 1-800 fake psychics at 3 o'clock in the morning trying to steal your money. No. Every single one of these people were the best scientists and also had supernatural connection to evil things to interpret the future. They're the real deal. What the king is saying is you are trying to delay the inevitable. I don't care about the rules you think are given by the gods. I'm angry, and I'm tired, and I'm upset, and I'm afraid, and I'm scared, so I might not control the gods, but I control you, and my word is law, and I have the right to go off the deep end because I'm king. He He misappropriates his anger, and in this case, there's no restraining force. No one could stop the king. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great or mighty, has ever done such a thing, asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't even live among humans. There is a vast gap between humanity and the supernatural. We can't make the gods do what we want. We are not, they are not at our beck and call like we are at your beck and call. Well, this made the king so angry and so furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Why? Because they were wise men too. Now remember, only the leaders, only the best of the best in this part of the civil service are in this meeting. But now everyone in the largest empire in human history at this moment will die who has this job. Again, innocence is in the crosshairs of anger, of political rage, of the whims of another dictator. Daniel and his friends have done nothing to deserve this. Even those who were in the room did nothing to deserve this. Here's the analogy we sort of need to get. Imagine if you had an eight-year-old son or daughter or, or niece or nephew, and they wanted to go to McDonald's, and you said something so offensive. You said, no. At that moment, they would say, I have every right to go. I am going. You said, no, I'm not taking you for your happy meal. Yes, I am. No, you're not. But the difference is your eight-year-old had the backing of the U.S. military. (laughs) I'm not taking you. Fine. The CIA is going to execute you in the next five minutes. What happy meal would you like? That is what dictators are like for real. Fill in the blank throughout history. Hitler, Kim Jong-il, Robert Mugabe, Stalin, they're all the same. Power, terror, uncontrolled, unchecked, unbalanced murders. Where Arioch, the king's commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put the de- to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and with tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a decree? Eric then explained the matter to Daniel. So the knock on the door, the decree is read. I'm going to now take your life and your friend's life. Daniel, not panicking, not despairing, full of wisdom, knowing God's sovereignty, focuses on the man's face, not on his sword, and says with gentleness and respect, trusting God and knowing no matter what took place, God is still good. Tell me what this means. 
Well, he seems to get some temporary relief. At this, Daniel went in to the king, verse 16, and asked him for time so he might interpret the dream for him. This is risk, by the way, upon risk upon risk. If you know anything about Near Eastern kingship, you can read it in Esther 2. If you come into the presence of king, the king and you are not invited, you die. If he does not put a scepter towards you, you die. He's enraged and out of control already. But Daniel goes and notice Daniel has nothing to offer. He's not there with the dream. He just says, give me a moment and I will go and do this thing. By the way, this is the difference between Daniel and his colleagues. His colleagues are called diviners. They are not prophets. They can interpret what the gods say. They cannot talk to the gods themselves. But Daniel is different than them. Why? Because he knows God and he has a relationship with God and God is accessible all the time to his children. Amen, anyone to that? I love what the prophet Isaiah actually speaks towards this. If you read read Isaiah 46. In English Bibles, it is titled the Babylonian gods or the gods of Babylon. And God compares himself with these gods. He says this in verse 5, with whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that I may be compared, God says. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on their scales and they hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and they worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it to its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Remember this and keep this in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is to come. And then God says, and my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I am pleased to do. So Daniel, knowing that that is God, knowing who God is, returns to his house, verse 17, and explains the matters to the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. These young men now find out they're going to be murdered also, and it's a very scary, tense moment. But notice what happens in this passage. I pointed this out last week. The Babylonian names are not used. The Jewish names of these young men are still used. And remember what the names mean because they are reused again to remind us that God is here. Remember, God is my judge is Daniel's name. Israel's God is still gracious. Who can compare to Israel's God? No one can. Israel's God is my help. All of the names of God in their Hebrew names are still being used because God is with them and has not abandoned them. And yet, even though God was with them, would he show up fully? Would he actually honor their request or would they just die being faithful? Well, verse 18 is the critical verse in this whole conversation. He said he urged them, urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. In other words, here's what they say. If you do not show up, God, we die. Now, never forget who these men are. These men are very good-looking. They have access to power. And not only that, they're scientists. They know literature. They are people of great renown. And yet, when it comes to the rage of the king, it doesn't matter how good-looking they are. It doesn't matter how many degrees they have. Here's the only thing they have left in their hand, prayer. But their prayer will be rooted in holy history. Oh, Daniel would have known the story of Joseph. 
Joseph sitting in jail, innocent, the king of his time. Pharaoh having a disturbing dream. God gives the answer. Joseph is uplifted. So this group, this small group, this connect group, cries out to God in desperate prayer, honest, heartfelt prayer. And never forget, prayer is the place of encounter between God and humans. It is the place of comfort when everything seems futile. It is the place where heaven's view is grasped. It is the place of supernatural power. And notice it is done together in community. This is a great power when the whole community exposes themselves to the presence of God, knows God is present, and knows the scriptures. And notice the name that God, the name of God that they use. They call him the God of heaven. Why is that so important? Because what Daniel is acknowledging, what these men are acknowledging is that God is over all. He is the supreme God. He's over the sun, over the moon, over the stars, over the idols, over the demons. The God of the pagans might not be accessible, but God is fully accessible, and he's above Nebuchadnezzar, and he's above any power, human or demonic. And so as it says that they prayed that night desperately asking for God's help. And what we should not read into the text is this, that all the execution stopped. The inference here is multiple of their friends and colleagues are being murdered around them while this is taking place. Death is not metaphorically at the door. Death is at the door. Well, it says during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. I always wondered if Daniel actually had such confidence in God that he fell asleep. Daniel, it says, was given the insight. And then notice what Daniel does. Does Daniel get up, put his robe on, and run to the king and say, I've got the answer? No, 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 no. Daniel pauses and he praises the God of heaven. And he says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and season. He deposes kings. He raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. Daniel breaks out in worship and praise. He says, God is in control. I'm not in control. Nebuchadnezzar's not in control. No one's in control. God's the one who brings people up and down. God is knowable, God is reachable, God is accessible, and God is with me in this moment. He says in verse 23, I thank you and I praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what I have asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. I love that he calls God the God of his ancestors, the God of his fathers, the God over time, God over our family. Why does that matter? Why are we doing this series? The reason why we are in the book of Daniel is because we are wrestling with now us as Christians living on the margins of society as actually the Christian faith has been viewed as positive, then became apathetic, and now is viewed as negative in our culture. As we are moving more and more to the margins and more and more suspicion grows around us, how do we thrive in exile and not give in to fear? So let me preach this for the third week in a row because week in and week out we see this in the book of Daniel. Sovereignty is at the center of the book and sovereignty has to be the center of our lives. God knows the future. God is above time. God is in the future. God is now and God is in the past. He's the author of time. God's blessing and presence are not geographically restricted. And the way we live our lives, as Daniel did, with real freedom, the way we do not get washed away in fear, the way we choose not to compromise, how we thrive in exile is that we really actually believe that this is God's world and he created it and he's still involved with it. And in the end, no matter what happens, to us or anything that changes around us, God is going to be just and loving and make all things right. Sovereignty is the underpinning of our faithfulness. 
If you do not believe that God is in control, you will compromise. If you believe God is in control, you will not compromise. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 26.3. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. So as things change in Canada, as we are in a different place that we've never been before, don't freak out, don't panic, don't fear. God is in control and he will not abandon us. Let his sovereignty be your rest when you're struggling with fear. When everything seems to be changing, it's okay. God is still with us. But the real lesson we learned that's unique out of Daniel 2 is this. We see the role of prayer the significance, the need, the power of prayer. How do you thrive in exile? How do you keep being salt and light in a culture that is becoming hostile or apathetic? Well, it's when prayer becomes more important to you and to a whole church. The world changed under Daniel because they went to the Lord in prayer. Daniel shows the power, the priority, and the place of prayer. And if you want to understand the faith of our fathers, you will notice from Genesis to Revelation, every single time there is a moment of significance People are praying before God acts. Listen to Jesus' half-brother James. Listen to the early church as they teach us the exact same thing. They actually model for us, like Daniel does, a type of prayer that is rarely seen in most churches, even in our church that's known actually as a church of prayer. And so much prayer ministry happens in this church. We see a prayer modeled here that is still very rare among us. Listen to James 1.5. If any Christian, any one of you lacks wisdom, He or she should ask God, who gives it generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to them. Oh, hold on. That's a promise of God. God says that he will not withhold wisdom from you, no matter who you are or how you're doing in your walk, whether you're struggling with sin or doing great. He says, I want to give wisdom how to live a godly life to my kids. He's not upstairs going, oh, stupid children, would you just learn? He's like, ask. But then he adds a key ingredient. He says, you must have faith when you pray. This is what Daniel had that so many of us actually don't have. But when the person asks, he or she must believe and not doubt because he or she who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The mat man or that woman should not think they'll receive anything from God because they are double-minded, unstable in all they do. Now, here is one of the most terribly preached verses in almost every church. I get really nervous when pastors read this because usually this is how this is preached. So if I go to God in prayer and I'm like, "Mm, no bad thoughts, no bad thoughts, no bad thoughts, all in, Mm, oh, boom, BMW. No, no, that is heresy. We do not believe in faith in faith. Oh, if I have more faith, I get more things. That's from the pit of hell. This is what is being taught here. When you know who God is, your faith is in God. Your faith is in his character. Your faith is in what he has done in history. Then you will know who you're dealing with and he will act because you're praying according to his will. Now watch this deeper. That phrase double-minded actually in Greek is double-souled. So here's what James is saying. If you go to God in prayer and you're praying amazing prayers, but you're double-souled. What do you mean double-souled? You're still playing with the world. God will not answer your prayer. It's not about having faith in faith. It's playing both sides of the fence. 
So in other words, he says, if you want to see your prayers answered, you want to see change in your family, you want to see your marriage resurrected, you want to see your neighbors and friends come to faith, you want to see the impossible become possible, then go to God because actually prayer is where things change. But when you go, go with no holding on to the world or no, I'm not going to give that to you, God. No, don't be double-souled. Be single-souled to God. And when you do that, you will see God do the impossible. Later in the book of Acts, we see the same thing. The story of Daniel is repeated The early church is threatened by the religious and political leaders of their day not to preach in Jesus' name or they'll be executed. It says in Acts 4.23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, and when they heard this, notice what they did. Had a political rally? No, this isn't my right. No, they prayed. They raised their voices together in prayer. Sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Oh, do you notice what Daniel does? Do you notice what James does? Do you notice what the earlier church does? The very first thing that happens when there is a crisis is they don't focus on the crisis. They focus on God. And they say, you're the real ruler, and you're the real king, and you're the real monarch, and you're the supreme king, and you're in charge, and and our enemies aren't in charge, and we're not in charge, you're in charge. In other words, they understood this too. Sovereignty was the underpinning for their prayers. Now, they choose a really weird name for God here. Daniel called him the God of heaven. The early church called him sovereign Lord. In Greek, this is how it reads. You are the dictator of the universe. When's the last time you prayed to God and called him a dictator? What they mean by this is not like you are like Kim Jong-il and you're a murderer. No, what they're saying is you actually are the real one in charge. All these other dictators think they're in charge. No, no, you're more powerful than anyone who's threatening us. And so this is what they say. You spoke through the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant David, our father. Why do the nations rage? Why do people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers gather against the Lord and against the anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they even met together with non-Jews and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Here it is. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. I love how they describe the people who hate the people of God. They call them raging. It's an image that comes from the farm. It's thoroughbred horses that bite, nip, kick, and jump. He said, this is what dictators are like and people who hate the faith. They rage, but there actually is no one whose rage can overcome God. God is in control. And then notice the prayer of the early church. Now, Lord... Consider their threats, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, stretch out your hand to heal, and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed together, the place that they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They actually said, God, we want you to look at our enemies who are threatening us. Look at those who are, focus your holy attention on those that are threatening us. And Lord, would you empower us by the Holy Spirit, since we know God, empower us so we can step out in courage and make the impossible become possible. So here's the question. In our time, in 2018, in this season, in our country, in Canada, in the GTA, what is the God of Daniel and the God of James and the God of John and the God of Peter, the God of the early church and our God asking us to specifically pray? Well, first, We know out of last week, we are all called to pray something, and I wonder how many people in the church actually did it after I preached it. Remember what the prophet Jeremiah said to Daniel's community? He said in Jeremiah 29, 7, 
He said, by the way, you were to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to God for it. If it prospers, you prosper too. Do you remember how shocking that was where Jeremiah said to Daniel, your first act of prayer is to pray for the city that invaded you, pray for the city that destroys the temple, pray for those who are trying to make you worship idols and demons, pray for those who are trying to change your name and your children's name, pray for those that killed off your friends and enemies, pray that this city of wickedness would be given shalom, the wholeness and healing of God, because if God heals Babylon, you will prosper also. In other words, Daniel, you don't divorce, you dive in. So the first thing we are to learn again is this, in this time, in this moment, we as Christians in this country that we love are called, whether you grew up here or you immigrated here, we are called to pray that the shalom presence of God would be found in our nation, would be found in Durham, and be found in Toronto, because if God brings shalom to this nation, we prosper also. We are the only ones who have access to God, I remind you, no one else. We must go before the King of Kings and say, bring shalom to our nation, keep peace in our nation, have mercy. But there's more. Here's the greater question I asked the Lord this week. What are you specifically, situationally, literally in this season and moment, asking us as a church to pray uniquely? And as I sat with the Holy Spirit and sat with Christ and and listened to him, what was so shocking to me was how clear he became on this subject. So this is when you need to lean in if you've been on Facebook. One, do you notice in this passage how God breaks into the natural and agitates and concerns people? Nebuchadnezzar's life is fine and fantastic. He's in control and suddenly he's given a dream and it so agitates him, he must do something. Daniel and his friends are so desperate and life is good and now they're in their jobs and they've got good paying jobs and they're still good looking and and God interferes. And I said to the Lord, well, why does that matter? I mean, I get the application, but why now? And it was like the Holy Spirit was whispering, tell my people, tell C4 that actually they need to ask me to actually interfere and agitate them. I said, well, what does that mean? He said, they don't actually believe how desperate it really is out there. I said, well, help me understand. I mean, there's a lot of desperate things. I watch like the, the news, like, he's like, no, no, they don't actually believe that their neighbors and their friends are really gonna be lost forever. They really have not come to the place where they understand, not just intellectually, but emotionally, how desperate the situation is, that Durham is lost and is going to a Christless eternity. The GTA is lost and going to a Christless eternity. Canada is lost and going to a Christless eternity. They have been designed to walk and know God, and yet they're lost, and yet the church is not in the place where they truly at our hearts believe how desperate it is. And it was like the Holy Spirit was saying, ask the church, to pray, to make them agitated enough so they see reality and then desperate prayers will start coming from the church. So it's like this moment where it's almost like God is saying to us as a church, number one, would you ask me to interfere in your life? Now, none of us love love praying prayers like that because we're like, I'm just fine, thanks so much, great. And the Lord's like, no, no, no. Ask me to send the Holy Spirit into your dreams, into your jobs, into your living rooms, into your marriages, into your table times, into your Starbucks meetings. Ask the Holy Spirit to come in such great power into the church where the Holy Spirit reveals how desperate the situation is so when we see how bad it is, we will end up praying prayers that are not natural to us but are actually God-given. So I said to the Lord, okay, I can, I can ask for that freaks me right out, but I can ask for that. 
I said, is there anything else? And he said, yes, there's something even more important. And I was like, ooh, okay, what? He said, here is the impossible thing that you were to ask for. I said, well, there are lots of impossible things in our congregation. He said, no, this is the one thing, the one. I said, what is it, Lord? And he said this, ready? He said, Daniel was to ask for his life. And he asked for a dream and an interpretation, and I gave it. He says, the impossible thing, C4, is to ask me in this season is this. Ask me for the salvation of people that will never come to me, but actually I'm going to do it anyway. It's almost like there's this supernatural opening. Though the culture is walking in the other direction, though thousands of churches are now closing, as more and more people are leaving the church, it's like sovereignly God is reminding us at C4 that he's still the God of heaven. And he's still in control and he's opening this window and he's saying, don't you know, see, for I am dragging and wooing and speaking and bringing many, many people to myself and I actually am doing this. So God is almost like instructing us, pray that we actually get desperate and understand and then pray for the person or persons in your life that you would never expect to come to faith. Brothers, sisters, enemies, aunts, uncles, bosses. And it's like the Holy Spirit saying, and do you know, I'm already working on them and actually when you go and speak to them, you will be shocked how many come to me. And let me tell you, I'm getting a little Pentecostal for a moment, testimony time. Remember I spoke a few weeks ago about my neighbor. I was talking about the power of the gospel, and I have been inviting my neighbor to Christmas Eve for years. And Sunday, I'm even a pastor, and I still got to know. For years, my wife and I would pray for our neighbors, and this is one of our neighbors. Intelligent, educated, project manager, everything's right, grandkids, kids, fine, all the stuff of life, but a good person. And every time I'd go to speak to him about the gospel or pray, it was nothing. When he got sick, remember I told you, I went over and there was a sovereign moment. I was walking out, the Holy Spirit said, John, go now. And I was like, oh, I'm afraid. He's like, go now. So I did. And I ended up in his living room speaking to him about the good news. The last time he'd been in church was when he was six or seven. He's now 72. And I explained the good news of Jesus to him, and I said, have you ever heard this before? He said, no, I have never had someone, even though I grew up in church, explain the good news of Jesus. I didn't know it was like that. I said, I want you to think about it. And I went away for a few weeks, and I walked through my living room one morning, and my wife said, hey, listen, I just heard our neighbor's going to palliative care. It's the end, so I got up. I walked right over. I walked in the house, and family and friends were gathering in that moment, and he was in one of those hospital beds, you know, to make him comfortable, and I walked in, and I, he'd been sleeping all day long. And I walked in, and first of all, I met his sister-in-law, who had never met before. And she says, I've heard good things about you. I said, good, I think. And she said, oh, just so you know, I'm a Christian. And I became a Christian four years ago. Me and my husband got baptized. We go to a church in the Muskokas. I said, well, go team. <laughs> and then I walked in the room, and I pulled a little bit of a John Thompson. I said, can I have the room, please? And cleared the room and closed the doors on all the relatives. And I sat down beside my neighbor, and I want to say this to you, and I didn't believe he'd ever become a Christian. I prayed, but I didn't believe it. Too many barriers, too much stuff, too much education, too much spirituality, too much church hurt, too much of all that. And I sat with him, and I said, so you're going to die and I shared the good news with you. What do you say? And he said, you know, everyone's telling me it's going to be so good on the other side. It will only be good, I said to him, if you meet the person who's been there and come back. I said, what do you want to do with Jesus? And he grabbed my hand. 
in his cancer-ridden body, and he said, I am ready. And I reminded him of the story of the thief on the cross, where the thief said to Jesus, just have mercy on me. And Jesus said what? Today you'll see me in paradise. Why am I sharing this story? To Oh, look, John the witness, are you joking? I didn't believe he was going to come to faith. And the Lord reminded me this week to share to this community this truth, that God is in the impossible business. And God is still sovereign in this country. And situationally, he is inviting C4 at this moment to pray three prayers. One, God, disturb me enough so I know reality. Two, God, start doing impossible things in people that will never say yes. And three, when I say the good news of Jesus to them in an alpha moment or in my own conversation, would you shock me when they say yes to your son? God is inviting us situationally into a prayer moment I don't know if we've ever seen before. So would you stand wherever you might be listening to my voice and could we pray together uh, these prayers? Number one, Lord, we acknowledge in this church at this moment that you are the God of heaven and you are the sovereign Lord and you are love and you are holy and you're in control. We want to admit our fearfulness to you right across this church. Lots of us are afraid. Country, family, kids, finances, life, like... So we're going to ask, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit in such a profound way that fear gets cast out of this church and love actually replaces it. Deeper than that, here's our prayer. And by the way, if you're willing to pray this, I'd love you to open your hands just as a symbol to God. Uh, God, in our very educated, middle-class reality, come Holy Spirit and disturb us. Show us from your view, the lostness and the desperation of our times. We are, we're too, <laughs> we're too distracted to even understand. We're going to actually need, so we're asking, show us how bad it is. Number two, Lord, show us who to pray for. What neighbor, what friend, what enemy, what boss, doesn't matter where they're from, no matter their background, atheist, agnostic, another religion, doesn't matter, show us. And Lord, we now pray for desperate prayers to grow, even beyond personalities that aren't desperate by personality or emotional by personality. Like, would you teach this church how to desperately pray? And then, Lord, our prayer is this. Just like you gave Daniel the dream and the interpretation, we pray you'd give us the desperation, the prayers, and then the people. Would many, many people at all of our sites and in other churches, start turning to Jesus in this season because you've sovereignly ordained it. As uh, Pastor Beth years ago wrote, God the Father, elect this region to yourself. Jesus, give them eternal life. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. We ask for the unusual work of the God of Daniel in our time, and we will not give in to the bad news story because God is still on the throne doing his work, and doing mighty things. All glory be to God the Father. All glory be to God the Son. All glory be to the Holy Spirit. We wait with anticipation for your answers to our prayers and to the changing of our friends' and neighbors' lives. Amen, amen, 
Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.